Section 17 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Second Decade, Chapter 3. The Campaigns of Crecy and Neville's Cross and the Siege of Calais, Part 1. But now the time had come at which Edward III was to make in person his long-projected descent upon France. He took with him his son and heir, Edward of Woodstock, whom one would gladly describe if the tradition could be trusted as late of Queen's College in the University of Oxford. The prince is said, though on very doubtful authority, to have been one of the first students of that institution, founded in 1340 by the confessor of Queen Philippa, and an engraving is still shown there of the vaulted chamber in which he slept as a boy undergraduate. The king's original intention was to join the Earl of Derby and Gascony, but apparently at the last moment he was persuaded by Geoffrey d'Arcourt, a French refugee, who had taken the place of d'Artois in Edward's councils, to steer for Normandy instead. He landed the following day at Saint-Vast, hard by cap This sudden change of destination is enough to show what the subsequent incidents of the war abundantly proved, that Edward's plans, if he had any, for the campaign, were at this time vague and unsettled in the extreme, and that the splendid success which ultimately crowned it was due not so much to far-seeing combinations on the part of the general as to his own good fortune and to the indomitable valor of the soldiers whom he led. The first happy accident of the campaign was the unaccountable absence of all preparation on the part of the French for a descent upon Normandy. The great army of Philip was massed in the south of France, too far distant to be recalled in time to arrest the advance of Edward before he had arrived within sight of Paris. With a force of 30,000 men, he marched at his ease through an open and undefended country, ravaging and pillaging far and wide, burning the ships in the harbors, and collecting a vast quantity of plunder, which he sent home with his returning fleet to England. At Caen, a city of 20,000 inhabitants, and described in a contemporary letter as larger than any town in England except London, he met with some resistance. Upon storming the place, he found in the archives a secret treaty which the Normans had themselves proposed, and entered into with the French, for the invasion of England at their own cost in 1339, a discovery which so enraged him that he gave up the town to plunder. He would have abandoned the inhabitants to be massacred, had not Geoffrey d'Arcourt withheld him, saying, Dear sire, restrain your courage, and be satisfied with what you have done. You have yet a long journey before you to get to Calais, it is worth while to place this remark on record, for though resting on somewhat doubtful authority, it points to the fact that the idea of getting possession of the great fortress and pirate haven of Calais, so important to the King of England whose revenues depended mainly upon trade, was what at any rate from this time forward determined the course of the campaign. Edward would in all probability have marched directly for Calais to effect a junction with his Flemish allies, who, to the number of 40,000 men, had entered the French territory on the north. 
had he not found it impossible to cross the Seine without first making a long detour to the eastward, the consequence of which will presently be seen. He remained three days at Caen, and then continued his advance toward the Seine, taking blackmail of the people of Louviers, one of the towns of Normandy where they made the greatest plenty of drapery in which was large, rich, and trading, and at length reached the river at Rouen, where he reckoned on being able to cross by the great bridge. But the French, having no army to oppose to Edward on his first arrival in the open field, had destroyed every bridge standing across the Seine between Rouen and Paris, with the intention of confining to the left or southern bank the English army who were eager to march northwards and leave the river behind them. At this moment Edward's situation was indeed beginning to become most critical. Retreat by the way he came was impossible, for the country had been exhausted and the inhabitants exasperated by the ravages of his army. And should he succeed in crossing the Seine higher up, King Philip was watching the invaders' movements with a host already twice as numerous as his own to cut him off on his way toward Calais in the sea. For when it became evident that the steps which the French themselves had taken in demolishing the bridges would inevitably bring the English close up to the gates of Paris, the alarm became so great that thousands of volunteers had flocked to Saint-Denis where Philip had taken up his quarters. The English host, meantime, advanced from Rouen along the southern bank of the river toward Paris, burning and destroying all the towns on their route, till they reached Poissy within five leagues of the city. Here again they found the bridge broken down, but Edward was far too anxious for the extrication of his army from a position becoming hourly more hazardous to entertain the idea of marching upon the capital. Halting his main body at Poissy, he gave orders to repair the bridge with all speed and sent out light troops to attack the faubourgs of Paris, reducing Saint-Germain, Saint-Cloud, and Bourg-la-Reine to ashes. The consternation in Paris was extreme, but during the five days taken up by the rebuilding of the bridge, King Edward abode in the Abbey of Poissy-les-Dames and kept the feast of Our Lady of Mid-August with great solemnity, sitting at table in robes of scarlet bordered with ermine. But the main body of Philip's army was a few miles off at Saint-Denis, already a mighty host, and daily swelled by fresh accessions of strength. Thither came Count Louis of Flanders, Sir John of Hainault, who had now deserted from the English cause, the Duke of Lorraine, the King of Bohemia, and his son Charles, King of the Romans, ere long to be the Emperor. For happily for King Philip, the quarrel between the Pope and the Emperor Louis had just broken out afresh, and the Pope, after loading him with insults, curses, and studied humiliations, which made him ridiculous in the eyes of the feudatories, had at last declared the imperial throne vacant, and called on the electors to nominate Charles of Bohemia emperor in his stead. But Charles at this time got no further than the preliminary step of being chosen King of the Romans. The Diet of Speyer declared his election void, and when he presented himself at the gates of Aachen, Aix-la-Chapelle, to be crowned emperor according to custom in that city, he found them closed against him. Having therefore no longer any footing in Germany, 
he volunteered to come to help King Philip with five hundred knights and nobles in his train. And now it almost seemed that the English army, still on the wrong side of the impassable Seine, and with the river Summa beyond it still to be crossed, before they could make good their retreat northwards, were about to fall an easy prey to their exasperated and exultant enemies, who had the command of the country between these two natural barriers, and were thus able to choose their own time and place for a battle. But in the meanwhile the repairs of the bridge at Poissy had been executed with an energy proportion to the danger, and as soon as it was declared passable, Edward broke up his camp and, crossing unmolested on the 16th of August, 1346, found himself safe so far on the northern bank of the Seine. Scarcely had his vanguard under Geoffrey d'Arcourt passed the bridge than they found themselves face to face with a large contingent of armed men from Amiens, marching horse and foot and in grand array to join the French army at Saint-Denis. They assailed each other with mutual fury, but the English was victorious, and it is said that twelve hundred of the enemy were slain in this chance encounter. Arrived safely at Pontoise, Edward received a message from the King of France challenging him to a pitched battle in the plain of Vaugirard. He replied that the King of England would always be found ready, but that being in his own dominions he would allow no one to dictate to him the time and place of battle. He then marched northward, pillaging and burning all before him, but it is remarkable and highly characteristic of the times that amidst all this cruelty and destruction the property of ecclesiastics was religiously spared. The Abbey of Beauvais was indeed destroyed, but King Edward straightway seized the men who had set it on fire and hanged twenty of them on the spot. At Eren he halted for three days, during which Geoffrey d'Arcourt and Lord Warwick, with three thousand men, were employed searching the banks of the Somme for a place at which the army might cross, either by bridge or ford. But the French had been beforehand with them, and they had to return to Edward with the news that as far as they could ascertain, the river which lay athwart the line of their retreat northwards was impassable. Breaking up his camp with such haste that when the French followed two hours after, they found meat on the spits, pasties in the ovens, and tables ready spread, the English king pushed on to Oismont, near the town of Abbeville, which had in it a still unbroken bridge across the river, but was strongly garrisoned by the enemy. Here, however, fortune again favored him. A varlet named Gobain Nagas, tempted by the promise of a rich reward, gave information of a tidal ford between Abbeville and the sea, where the river, he said, had at the ebb a depth of water barely up to the knees, and a bottom, strong and hard, of white stone, whence it went by the name of Blanche Tache. End of section 17